This is Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Welcome to the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week. Over the next couple of hours, we're going to bring you some of the most important and informative coronavirus conversations that we had this week on our daily radio show. And Jason, it was week seven again for most of us working from home. This week, I feel like some of the things that we focused on was certainly continued to on the energy market. We'll get to that in just a moment. But also earnings and expectations about life after COVID-19 dominated the Bloomberg and our reporting once again and really our interviews. And I feel like we continue to talk about life after the virus. That continues to be a big question, whether it's the auto industry, education, hotels, restaurants, and entertainment productions. And so how do we tackle all that? We go to people in the know. We go to people who are actually on the front lines as we're making these decisions, making these plans. We talk to CEOs. We talk to investors, as we often do. This is, after all, Bloomberg. But even a chef, a top chef out there about how they're handling this. And as you say, not just what's going on now, now, but what they see when they look around the corner, because what we do know is life will be different. Very, very different. We're also going to hear from Keith Barr. He's the CEO of Intercontinental Hotel Group. Talk about another industry that certainly will be different. It is one of the world's largest hotel companies. And so we caught up with him about the impact. They've had a big impact, but also what does life look like afterwards? And also Max Levchin, he may be best known to many of you as the co-founder of PayPal, but he's got a couple new companies, one of which, Affirm, it is making loans to folks to buy things. And so talk about someone who's got insights into what people are buying and not. Yeah, so entrenched in the startup world. So I'm so glad we were able to catch up with him. We also caught up with another industry like the hotel industry that has really been beaten up because of the virus. Also, restaurants around the nation and in particular in New York City. Uh, Crafted Hospitality owner and chef, he's well known, Tom Colicchio, really a big advocate for the hospitality industry and restaurants in particular. We talked with him about what he's trying to do to get more support really from the government to help out the restaurant industry. It's one of the big questions out there, not just in the restaurant industry, but for everyone as we start to see this rescue and stimulus Mm -hmm. get put out. First up, though, let's go inside the magazine. We take a look at Exxon's fall from oil juggernaut to kind of -of Mm run-of-the-mill mediocre company. It's the cover story this week. We heard from Bloomberg Businessweek editor Joel Weber and one of the writers of the story, Brian Gruley. Exxon started behaving in a less disciplined way than it had into, you know, the early aughts where, you know, they would announce a deal for some acreage or another company and it was clear to the street, here's how they're going to make money off this in the near term. And so in 09, they bought a really big natural gas company to get in on shale gas. And I think gas prices started dropping even before they closed the deal. Um, and they could have gone into shale oil. They totally didn't. Um, could have made a lot of money then at that time, but they did gas. They got creamed. Uh, same thing, uh, they went into the oil sands in western Canada. Very expensive way to get oil out of uh, sand, essentially. It's more like mining than drilling. And that turned out to be $16 billion spent hmm. not for not very much. Uh, Russia, another going to be a great big deal with uh, the old Exxon CEO, Rex Tillerson, his comrade uh, Vladimir Putin. 
envisioning three to $500 billion in the Arctic, and then Putin went back to Crimea, and Obama said, you're not doing business over there anymore, Exxon, and that kind of killed that deal. And so it was going after these great, big, risky deals, and underlying this was, to some degree, the assumption that we all held for many, many years, decades even, that oil is a finite resource, and it's going to run out. We're going to hit peak oil. And, and as, as all, they were doing all that, that assumption was changing radically because of the technology that enables companies to uh, break into very tight spaces of oil and gas and bring out these huge uh, deposits of oil and gas that just weren't acceptable right. before. So we went from uh, scarce, assumed scarcity to certain abundance. Brian, I feel like you and Kevin have the makings of a book here. And there have been several books written about Exxon because and I think you cite um, one where they called Exxon one of the most powerful businesses ever produced by American capitalism. And they have been a company, right? Just great, a sign of great corporate America and just have plowed ahead decade after decade. So here we are now. And they're in a tough spot on a many different levels. Can they plow ahead? Oh, yeah. I mean, first of all, Exxon's, you know, they're not going bankrupt. Or they're, they're, not, they're not in that kind of trouble. Um, uh, they have a, a reasonably strong balance sheet given the circumstances of the market. And what's going to happen in oil in the next several months, there is, there is a good chance that a lot of the independent, smaller players in the shale fields in West Texas and in North Dakota are just, you know, they're not going to be able to make it. And so they're going to look to the big boys to buy them out. And, you know, the Exxons and Chevrons of the world aren't going to pay them 90 cents on the dollar. They're going to buy them on the cheap. And that's writer Brian Gruley of The Cover Story and Joel Weber, the editor of Bloomberg Business Week. And I have to say a departure over the last few weeks, Carol, mm. from covers that are all are really strictly about coronavirus. Clearly, the pandemic plays into the oil story, but it's much bigger. Well, and it's also how the mighty have fallen, right? Who would have thought that we'd be talking about Exxon this way if you go back a decade or so? But it is certainly in a different place because of the global energy markets and where we are today. We're going to have more on that story, too, in the Bloomberg Business Week cover podcast, so look for that as well. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, our conversation with Tom Dahl. He's the president and CEO of Subaru of America. Again, another industry. Right? Nobody's out there shopping for cars. They've been hit hard. In the crosshairs, this is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. Well, today we're bringing you some of the most important, we hope, informative conversations we had this week on our daily Bloomberg Business Week radio show, all about the coronavirus looking mm-hmm. far and wide, Carol, for what happens next. And Jason, let's remind everybody, our interviews this week, again, happening in real time, news continuing to cross the Bloomberg at every minute of the day about all industries impacted by the virus. One of those industries, the auto industry. And with that, we spoke with Tom Dahl. He's the president and CEO of Subaru of America. Uh, This sector, the auto industry, man, hit hard. Nobody out there shopping for cars. So we talked with them about how they're adapting and how they're helping others get through the virus. This is going to be a little bit longer recovery than people thought, only because of the depth of it. Remember, 
uh, we can say we're going to start up our factories, in which they're supposed to start up on May the 11th, but we're dependent on our suppliers to be able to make sure that we've got the parts to be able to produce the cars in the volumes that we need them to produce in. The other issue that's going to happen in the car business, I believe, is so many of the other manufacturers have so much inventory that have to be disposed of, and what's been happening in the fleet and rental car markets is something that uh, we have to pay attention to because those cars ultimately have to be disposed of in the marketplace as well. So it's going to be interesting when the market finally does open up and we see what happens uh, in terms of the competitive actions by some of the competitors. So let's unpack that a little bit, Tom, if we can, because I, I want to take you back to something you said a minute ago about the supply chain, because we were talking about this as it relates to Apple and many other companies. Um, you're a global company, uh, obviously, and cars are complicated. I, I don't have to tell you that. You know it much better uh, sure. than, than we do. What have you seen so far in terms of the pain points and, and how you're able to deal with them when it comes to the supply chain? It's fascinating because uh, you know I've been around a long time uh, at our company and around the car industry. You go back to 1982 at the company, I, is that right? I do. Yes, I've, I've, I've been around. I'm dating myself, right? <laughs> You've seen some things. I've, I've, You've I've seen, seen some a lot. Things. I'll tell you what. I've never seen anything like this. Yeah. Um, I, I've, yeah. I've seen my share of recessions, and this is completely different because it. You know, believe me when I tell you, it just shut down. You don't just simply close an automobile manufacturing plant for nine weeks and then just expect it to start right back up again. The same thing with our suppliers. You just don't shut them down for that length of a period of time and not expect there's going to be some hiccups once the factories start to get moving again. And I think we have to plan for that as we begin to bring up our production capacity. It's going to be a little bit of a while, I think, before we get back to the levels of, of production that we had seen prior to the, to the shutdown. But it's going to be interesting to see how it all comes together. I know our folks are working very hard to make it happen. Tom, I am curious, what worries you more? What the, the economy looks like and, you know, the confidence that consumers have to go out there and hopefully have jobs that they can buy cars? Or is it more the logistics of getting the suppliers and everything back up and running? What worries you more? The economy. Well, we'll get the suppliers all figured out. They know what they're doing. And our production engineers are fantastic. They'll get the factories back up and running. I'm not worried about that. I'm worried about the long-term impact that this might have on consumer consumers and their willingness to buy and, and spend on important things like a car and expensive things like a car or a home. Right? I mean, great news right now, right? Mortgage interest rates, you probably reported this earlier, are down to the lowest level ever, mm -hmm. right? Right. But people aren't, but the, but the housing market's in a tank. Uh, people have to, people need to have some, some stability before they're going to be willing to go back out there. So how quickly can these can jobs be added back into the economy and we get back to the point where people now feel more comfortable? Right. Well, you know, and the auto industry, as you well know, you know, incentives have often been a part of it. Does that make a difference in this kind of environment or what, what we perceive will be the economic environment on the other side of this? Well, there's no question that the demand curve has shifted down dramatically. You know, before, before the shutdown, we were probably at a 16.8 to 17 million unit sales projection for this calendar year. Now everybody thinks, and myself included, that we're going to be somewhere between 13 and 14 million vehicles for the year. So there's been a big shift. And up until that point, as you know, production was, was being done to support that. So when you come out of this thing, there's, it's definitely going to be a buyer's market. And manufacturers are going to try to figure out how they can get that market share amongst themselves in that, in that much smaller market. And, and uh, you know, there probably are going to be significant levels of incentives that are going to be out there once it opens up. Um, we, you know, we have to be smart in how we play in that game because we're not, 
we don't have the resources that a lot of the other manufacturers have because of our size. We have to do things a little bit differently. One thing I do wonder about, and, and I'm curious about workers. Tell me about your workforce and whether or not you've been able to hold on to people or, or what. Sure. For our, our headquarters people here that are based in Camden, we haven't laid off anybody. We have um, essentially have a policy now where people are working from home. There's only about a handful of us that come in here every day because we have to essentially to kind of keep the, uh, the business running. But we're very concerned about the health and the safety and the welfare of our people being in, uh, being in New Jersey, one of the states that's most affected by it. Um, so we're very, we're very concerned. We're making sure that we, we disinfect our building. We're making sure that uh, we're taking all the protocols uh, the keeping the social distancing and so forth. But uh, so far, we haven't, um, you know, we're, we're keeping everybody on. It's, although there's a lot less work to do, right? Because we don't have the level of business that we had before. But um, so far, we're trying to do what we can for our most valuable asset, which is our, which is our, our, our employees, our staff. Right. Well, and Tom, as you alluded to, you know, you're there in New Jersey. Daryl's in New Jersey. I'm in New York. You know, we're all at the epicenter of this in in many ways. And so sort of seeing firsthand the effect of this, you know, and we've been talking a lot about this notion of, you know, what is the responsibility of a company to the broader community? I know that you guys have been involved with Feeding Feeding America uh, pretty closely along the way here. Tell us what you're up to and how that works at this time. Yeah, sure. Uh, what happened was we were when the pandemic first started. Uh, you know, we saw the lines. What struck me was the lines that occurred in San Antonio, uh, with the ten thousand people coming to a food donation center to get food. And so we came back to the office that day and we said, "What can we do to uh, help alleviate the hunger crisis immediately?" And we came up with the idea of working with uh, Feeding America in order for us to be able to move quickly because Feeding America. As you probably know, they're they're very 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 good at uh, partnering with 200 food banks around the country, where we also have retailers, and so our retailers can then partner with those food banks to make sure that they get the food. So we're donating. I'm sure you know this. We're donating 50 million meals to uh, Feeding America, enough to enough to um, you know satisfy uh, almost what four point what's that be 4.1 or 4.2 million families for a day in terms of their meals. That's Tom Dahl, the president and CEO of Subaru of America. And Jason, we know, like the hotel industry, the hospitality industry, restaurants, this industry, the car industry, also hurt. Well, this is a business that already was in a state of dramatic change and existential crisis, you might say. So interesting to get some time with Tom and figure out what people think about when it comes to transportation. And also, it's a manufacturing intensive business, to say the least. You're listening to Bloomberg BizWeek. Coming up, a conversation with David Edelman. He's the founder of Darko Capital and owner of sports teams, longtime investor, a lot of big thoughts, and really looking ahead with him. His world contains so much. So it was great to catch up with him. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. We're bringing you some of the most important and informative conversations that we had throughout the week on our daily radio show. A lot of it, of course, Jason, relating to the virus, the impact, and what's our way forward after COVID-19. Well, and we're always looking for folks, Carol, who have their fingers in a number of pies. That is so true about David Edelman. He's the founder of Darko Capital down in Philadelphia, also has interests in the sports world, in the movie world. He's got it all. And he also had some pretty hot takes about what we're seeing now and what we may see in the not too distant future. 
from my perspective, because we do touch a lot of businesses um, from, you know, student housing and colleges and universities to, you know, private equity, I, I think first and foremost is you have to look at the impact this is having on people and, you, you know, employment and you know, that the economy you went from having almost 3% unemployment to, you know, this is going to be a big difference and a big number as the months ahead come. And I think, you know, kind of the insight into seeing industries that are just getting, you know, decimated is uh, just really sad and unfortunate. Well, let's talk about the, the world of education first and foremost. Carol and I talk about it a lot in part because we both have juniors in high school. And so we're thinking about it <laughs> okay, all the time. We're thinking more about a senior in high school. So <laughs> well, there uh, you go. With you. So yeah. front of mind for you as well. I mean, and I know nothing has been decided. We hear sort of drips and drabs from various uh, college presidents, and many of them appear on our air here with us. They're not sure what they're going to do. Tell us about how you think about it from someone who is in the business of housing these students. How, How do you determine what to do and when to do it? So we were able to kind of really get some very interesting insight into what happened from the moment the schools transitioned from, you know, on campus to online. And I I think the most surprising data point was across the country, about 24,000, 25,000 students that we house, somewhere in the neighborhood of 65% of them sheltered and quarantined in our apartments versus going to what I'll say, quote, home. Wow. 65%? Correct. And, you know, some places like Texas and Louisiana was in the 80s and higher. And we we learned a lot from that, which was, A, you know, one, you know, not everyone has a traditional family unit yeah. where you know maybe going home was conducive. Two, I think not everyone wants to be you know quarantined with their family. And, and three, I think that a lot of these students made the decision that uh, in order for them to stay focused on their education, they needed kind of the uh, you know comfort of where they were in their apartment. And so it was a staggering number for us. I think it reaffirmed that uh, you know these students are young adults and uh, you know kind of putting themselves first as to far as far as a you know, focus on education and what they wanted to accomplish. So you know, that, that was the first data point that just really kind of took us all by surprise. And I think the other part that we learned is that the online experience that these students received was not what they, it didn't live up to their expectations or candidly the expectations of the university. And I think, you know, one thing we've always looked at in our business of student housing is, hey, what's the durability of universities compared to online learning? You know, prior to this, you know, that that online learning was, uh, you know, uh, you know, kind of becoming more prevalent. And we had always said that you can't replace the college experience. And now more than ever, I'm convinced of that. And I I think this really proved it. And where I'm headed with that is that based on the universities we've spoken with, they really want to get open in the fall. Uh, the economics, of course, you know, where this is a Bloomberg business, so let's talk about the yeah. economics. They, they can't afford not to open um, and not have the students there, number one. But number two, I think they acknowledge that the quality of the education online is not the same as kind of in the classroom. Well, and you have to imagine a scenario where a student or a parent uh, like us is going to, shall we say, balk at the idea of paying, you know, fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars a year for an online education, right? I mean, fair to say? I think it's fair. Yeah. I think it's fair. Well, and I do, you have to think educational institutions are, are looking at that, David, and saying, man, if we don't get our act together, people are going to be like, especially if the online goes really, if it was going really well, to kind of rethink how we do all of this. 
Yeah, and I've always said that you know there's over 4,500 colleges and universities out there, and certainly from a campus apartments perspective, when we're looking to build apartments, we want to pick universities that we think are a value proposition. And a lot of universities that exist don't offer, in my opinion, the value proposition uh, for you know for the for the cost. But to your point, the value proposition in paying you know forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars for a purely online experience probably doesn't make sense long term. And that's David Edelman, the founder of Darko Capital. I have to say one of my favorite conversations of the week, Carol, because we started up and he basically was like, look, this is what it's going to be. This is where we're going to go. These are the things we have to worry about. Well, and what I loved is he really had some great insight uh, on education uh, and thoughts about online education. He's talking to a lot of folks who are running colleges and universities. He's all about, you know, housing for students, but he also got some insight about how the online world is working when it comes to education, but also, as you said, sports, private aviation, so much. So I'm really glad we got some time with him. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, we hear from PayPal co-founder Max Levchin on his latest company, Affirm. This is someone to Jason, at the crossroads of startups, technology, and the impact it's having on our world. His whole job is looking around the corner, and he's anticipated so many things when it comes to consumers and technology. You're going to want to tune in. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. Well, today we're bringing you some of the most important and we hope informative conversations we had on our daily Bloomberg Business Week radio show about the coronavirus. And again, Carol, these are happening in real time across the course of the week. So forgive us if maybe the news (laughs) overtakes it at some point. So much happening and so quickly. Well, we had the opportunity to catch up with Max Levchin, Talk about someone who understands things happening quickly and the impact it's having on our world. The co-founder of PayPal, he's got a new startup. It's called Affirm, and it's all about um, installment plans to help online shoppers. So really playing into what's going on with consumers, where they're spending money, where they're not. His resume to Jason is a reminder of why we learn a lot when we talk to him. Listen to our conversation. You know, I have to say, knocking on wood, we've been extremely lucky firm transition to work from home seamlessly, almost almost perfectly really, and uh, we've been able to support our partners and our customers and our employees throughout this process generally without too many crazy fire drills. So all in, I feel very lucky and I'm certainly aware of companies where all sorts of upheaval already took place and you know I think some of this is just getting started too. Well, and Max, it's interesting. I mean, it comes at at a fascinating time for you where there's so much momentum around what you're doing at a firm and you have this pretty incredible window into consumer spending. First of all, remind us exactly how a firm works and and then we'll get into sort of what you're seeing uh, through some of that data. Sure. A firm serves primarily a young, younger audience, as in our customers are primarily millennials and Gen Xers and, and so forth. And we're really a credit card alternative. Uh, you would find this if you're buying a Peloton or if you're shopping on walmart.com and really every merchant in between, we are there in the checkout uh, page, sometimes on the product page, where if you don't want to use your credit card and would like to pay for an item or items over time <clears throat> with great degree of simplicity, everything is clearly priced. There are no fees of any kind. They're not even late fees. So it's a product that really was built on this idea that if we communicate very clearly to our customers what it takes to pay something over time, they would choose us over credit cards. And, and we've been at it for eight years. At this point, we have many thousands of merchants that work with us and many, many, many millions of customers, millions of dollars 
questions that we processed. And so we do see sort of demand in retail, primarily online, although we have a meaningful presence offline as well. And so the, you're right, we, we, we have some, uh, some fascinating stats that we're observing. Well, let's get into that. Tell us about, because, you know, Jason and I have talked about just kind of on our own world, what we're spending money on right now. And earlier we talked about, you know, that millennials in particular might stop with all the experiences and they're going to be spending on their home and other things because that's going to be the world we're living with and and you're not going to be able to travel easily. What are some of the data points that you guys are seeing about where people are spending their money right now? So you pretty much nailed it. I have to say, I think the the, the headline is exactly right. Uh, Millennials, and, and, and we're not just serving millennials, but many of our customers are sort of on the younger side, but everyone is sort of turned inwards. So if you are setting up your home office, your home gym, your home restaurant, or your or at least the kitchen part of your home restaurant, that is growing off the charts. So just to give you some stats, home office sales that we are processing is up 200%. Um, overall, sort of homewares from mattresses to furniture to decoration, you know, everything that you might have, want to have to make your home nicer you know, about 20%, but there's some segments that are just incredibly high demand right now. So kitchen supplies, for example, are up 70%. Apparently, everyone has to bake and make their right. auto starters. And so uh, sure enough, there's lots and lots of things that you need for that, including bread makers, which is one of the top categories, apparently. Mm-hmm. Uh, fitness, you know, as you bake, you need to burn the calories too. So across the board, you know, obviously Peloton is a uh, one of the publicly traded companies that, that's done extraordinarily well in that category. But Mirror and Tonal and all these other merchant partners of ours are all reporting huge growth. The overall category is up 163%, which is, you know, that, that, that's an incredible growth given how big it already is. Um, I can sort of go on and on. The sort of the, the, the losers on the other side or sort of the unfortunate ones are also quite predictable. Um, clothing, you know, no one needs yeah. to wear pants on Zoom. And so right. uh, most, you know, <laughs> you know, most people seem to be not shopping for, for fashion. Um, uh, there's actually there's a footnote, I'll come back to that in a second, but clothing is down, travel is decimated, so really yeah. decimated in the sense that it's been 90% down. Max Levchin is the CEO of a firm, co-founder of PayPal, a stalwart of Silicon Valley. We want to talk with him more expansively about some of his experience and what happens next. But Max, before we leave a firm, I do want to ask you, this has brought into sharp relief a lot of trends within buying and retail and merchants so many things. I do wonder from your perspective, what does this accelerate or what does it accentuate, I guess, when it comes to the future of buying from the merchant side of things? Lots of different things. Uh, it could be a multi-hour uh, yeah. conversation at this point. What's so the changing. most important thing then? <laughs> uh, I think just vis-a-vis your, your conversation about the Olympics, uh, I think every major retailer with a significant presence offline is going to have to reinvent themselves from both logistical and real estate management perspective where showrooms are going to become warehouses and front of the house is going to become fulfillment of the house. And so there's just lots and lots of major movement that has to take place, especially for folks with large real estate holdings. And then while they're doing this, they're going to have to retool themselves for existence that involves buy online, pick up and store, buy over mail, return and store. And all these new processes that used to be exceptions are now going to be front and center because people are not going to be comfortable walking around a large store with a salesperson in their face. And so as this takes place, I think it's going to create massive opportunities for people that create software that runs these sort of systems and connects the dots between different warehouses and fulfillment pipelines and things like that. So I think that's probably the, the, the thing that I'm hearing about more and more in just the last couple of weeks. 
Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, right? Crisis creates, you know, certainly disruption and innovation. And because you kind of have to figure out a new way to do it, and you have to do it fast if you're going to survive. I do wonder too, Max, when you look at specific retail categories, like I look at big department stores, are people going to want to go back? And I know that's easy for me to say because I live in an urban environment and I have lots of options. But I do wonder, and you know, if you're out in suburbia, that's where you go to, you know, if you want to go to a brick and mortar. But I do wonder what your thoughts on, uh, on about, you know, like department stores on the other side of this who are already in a beaten down state. I think the weak will absolutely go out of business. I don't, I don't think that's a, that's a question at this point. The strong ones will innovate. I think it's an opportunity for those that want to double down on the physical retail and create the impression, hopefully the reality of safety. You know, maybe instead of having a physical salesperson, you'll have an you know iPad on wheels rolling around with you in a store and telling you where to look. You know, I think the physical distancing and concern for just personal safety is going to prevail, but it's not as though we aren't going to get out of the house, especially as soon as we're allowed to do so. It's just we're going to pick places where we feel safer, where we feel like we are likely to get what we need fulfilled and uh not expose ourselves any more than we absolutely must. It's just, you know, trips to the grocery stores have never really ended because people need to eat. People are going to go buy, you know, pans again. They're just going to choose stores where they feel the safest and uh, that they're going to get in and out and get get the things done. Right. Max, I do wonder, I mean, especially given your experience and, and history and, you know, you're there on the front lines of, of Silicon Valley. You've watched, I'm sure, with great interest as we have, all of us as a society sort of wrestle with technology over the last few years and the role that it plays and the good and, and the bad. I do wonder how this, in your estimation, this pandemic has changed our relationship with technology. What do we know more about? What do we think more about as we go forward, especially given what you just said as it relates to brick and mortar and sort of that physical experience? I think all the choices we have to make are brought into sharper relief. And I think right now we are in this extreme triage mode where, you know, you can have a video conferencing company that has a well-known, fairly significant security bug. And everybody says, well, that's a real problem, but I'm still going to get on my call right now because I have to run my business or I need to do this or that. And so many choices that we make are going to be extremely utilitarian and far less theoretical. Yes, I care about my privacy. No, I'm not going to hang up because I need to finish this negotiation or this contract. As we sort of get into a little bit more normalcy or get used to the new normal, we are going to get back to sort of a little bit more navel-gazing and questioning, you know, are we making the right trade-offs? That said, I think, you know, even the conversation around will Google and Apple, you know, the product we're working on to trace contacts, mm-hmm. is that going to be a major privacy violation or not? I think in the world where we're canceling Olympics, which to me is a sort of a you know, cornerstone event that defines society because we just can't guarantee safety, I think we should double down and lean into technology that will allow us to enable such events again. So I, I think in that sense, I'm, I'm a big technology bull. That said, I think over time, as we get used to things, we will probably uh, start questioning some of the decisions we're making. That's Max Levchin, the CEO of Affirm. And let's remind everybody, he co-founded PayPal. He was the CTO of that company. He was chairman of Yelp for a long, long time. He was on Yahoo's board. So this is a guy who understands, an individual who understands what's going on in technology, really understands disruption. Uh, and as you said, someone who's great at looking around the corner, what's coming up next? Right. Fundamental changes are happening right now. Some of the things were happening already. This is an accelerant. But looking ahead, our lives are certainly going to be different. And we know 
know for a fact that technology is going to play a big role. Well, that wraps up the first hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Plenty coming up in our next hour, including a conversation with the dean of the Boston University School of Public Health. We're talking about Sandro Galea, and we love catching up with him. I feel like this is another one of our go-to voices as we've been dealing with the pandemic and understanding how we get through this. Plus, this weekend, it is the season premiere of Billions, one of my favorite shows. We caught up with the co-executive producer for that Showtime hit, talking about the industry, but also a little bit of a preview of what you may see come Sunday night. But like many other productions, right, they've had to shut down. So they're thinking, too, um, about how do you come back after uh, the virus, because it's going to be very different when it comes to productions uh, in the city, in the state, and really around the country. Plus, another edition of Business Week Talks, this one featuring a conversation we had with Keith Barr. He's the CEO of Intercontinental Hotels Group. All right, looking forward to that. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Hello, I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. Today, we're bringing you some of the most important, we hope, informative conversations we had on our daily radio show, Bloomberg Business Week, all about the coronavirus. It's in the center of all of our lives. It is going to affect how we work, how we play, everything that we do going forward. So a lot of interesting conversations coming up. And Jason, of course, these conversations happening in real time as the news continue to change around us. One of the conversations we had, Keith Barr, he's the CEO of the giant hotel company, Intercontinental Hotels Group. It was another edition of BW Talks. Loved catching up with him. Also, April Taylor. We hadn't talked to her before, but we were so excited because she's a co-executive producer of the big hit show Billions, premiering season five this weekend. But first up, we checked in on the virus, the medical perspective with one of our go-to guests. We're talking about Sandro Galea. He's the dean of the Boston University School of Public Health. Check it out. As the uh, pandemic uh, proceeds, we are seeing more and more how this exposes fractures in our society. The uh, When the pandemic first started, there were a lot of conversation about how the virus does not discriminate, it affects everybody. But it didn't take long for us to realize that the virus does discriminate, that yes, we are all at risk of the virus, but ultimately those who are more at risk are those who are marginalized, who are poor, who are people of color, who live alone, who are single parents, and those who die are those same groups. So what we're seeing is a world where groups that are vulnerable do not even have protections from something as widespread as a pandemic like this. And and you're hearing this from data emerging from cities all over the country and really from all over the world. So uh, I certainly hope that this is a wake-up call for us that says, even in the context of a pandemic, we have created conditions where health haves and health have-nots deviate at a time like this. And Dr. Galea, how did we get here? I mean, how did it get this bad? Uh, and, and was this something that always existed? Mm-hmm. It feels like it's been exacerbated in the last, yeah. call, you know, call it 10, 20 years. Yeah, well, when you look at the data, it, it has been exacerbated probably in the last 30 to 40 years. Okay. So about, about 40 years ago, this is important to, to, to note, the, the American health, American health was among the best of the high income world. Now, today, we are Square, squarely the worst, we have the squarely the worst health of any of our high-income country peers. So we have uh, life expectancy is shorter, we have higher deaths from infectious disease, higher deaths from, non, from uh, non-communicable disease, and we leave about five years of life expectancy on the table mm. compared to other countries. So, you know, I, I would ask you and ask anybody listening, you know, we have chosen, we have chosen to 
leave five years behind in life expectancy. And now you may be saying, well, I didn't choose that, but we did. You did and I did because we have, we have voted for policies that allow that to happen. So it's been about the past 30 to 40 years where our health as a country has been getting progressively worse. And it has brought us to a place where when something like this happens, it reveals this underlying truth. Now, this truth is with us at all times. The virus did not create it. The virus is just exposing it. And what specifically the policies and, and, and maybe the ones that could more easily than others be reversed, what, what would you point to? I think we, we need to really look at this from top to bottom. We would mm-hmm. start with the fact that we have a system which ultimately accumulates resources and rewards those who have resources. That starts from our taxation policies all the way to our employment policies, all the way to who gets sick leave, who doesn't, from the state of our education, from the state of our housing. If we really wanted to tackle this, we would say, how do we create a world where everybody has access to high-quality education to allow us to change people's life trajectories? That everybody has access to stable housing, where we have a fair economy to such, such, such that people who work hard can get jobs that puts them on the right track. And all of that ultimately would add up to creating much better life trajectories for people. That is so true, because if you think about it, if you get a good education, you'll probably get a good job that also provides you with great benefits or good benefits in terms of health care and other... Or some benefits. Or some benefits, right? But but we know, what's, what amazes me, and Jason and I um, hosted a quality summit that we did here at Bloomberg, and we were talking about you know how this virus is impacting the more vulnerable populations. As you said, Healthcare, the problems have been exacerbated, I thought you said 45 to 50 years. It's a long time. Why haven't we been able to figure this Hmm. out? We have some of the best and brightest minds in this nation, public sector, private sector. We know the problems are there. They've been there for a long time. What's holding us back? Is it private sector? Is it public sector? Where's the problem? Well, it's a a terrific question. I I would point to all of us. I think we are holding ourselves back, frankly, because those of us who are in the richest 20%, and that means me, that means you, um, have been too self-involved. And frankly, the system serves us too well. there, There really is little incentive to push against a system that ultimately serves those who are dominating the cultural business conversation. And, and, that is, and that is all of us. So we need to say this is a moment in time which has exposed these underlying inequities and which shows us that there is a country of health haves, which is roughly the richest 20%, and health have nots, which is roughly the poorest 80%, and say that is not the kind of country we want to live in. Now, we do not want to live in that kind of country because that is wrong. And secondly, because if there is another outbreak like this, it threatens us all. So we're beginning to see with this outbreak that if some of us are vulnerable, all of us are vulnerable. And if this is not a wake-up call, a moment in time, I don't know what is. And that's Sandro Galea. He's the dean of the Boston University School of Public Health and author a very relevant, and I have to say, candid and honest voice in all of this. I really enjoyed talking to him because he's looking at it, obviously, from the medical perspective, but also from a social perspective and helping us understand some of what this virus is laying bare. You enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. I had a bunch of our listeners emailing me or tweeting at me because they, that conversation really resonated with them. What's interesting, you're right, Jason. He talks about how the coronavirus has been really a wake-up call about the health haves and health have-nots in our society. It's a much bigger problem than we may have thought, and he really gets into that. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, another edition of Business Week Talks features our conversation with Keith Barr. He's the CEO of Intercontinental Hotels Group. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg. 
This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. We're bringing you some of the most important and informative conversations that we had throughout the week on our daily radio show. Of course, talking a lot about the virus, Jason, on various industries and what's our way forward after COVID-19. And these are happening in real time, of course. And we were lucky to have another edition of Business Week Talks. It's our series where we go a little deeper with a CEO and in this case, someone who's right in the middle of the most disrupted, one of the most disrupted industries out there talking about hospitality. Here's our conversation with the CEO of Intercontinental Hotels Group, Keith Barr. A a challenging time for the hotel industry. I mean, when you think about the impact of the travel restrictions, social distancing, um, borders being closed, cancellation of conferences, meetings, and events. Um, you know, we've never seen an impact to demand for the hotel industry like this in our lifetime. When I looked at the start of the year, we had a fairly good January and February. And then as an industry, we saw revenues begin falling quite quickly uh, in, in March. And, and the impact on people has been significant, right? I mean, this industry employs travel and tourism is one in 10 jobs globally. And so you've seen millions of people in the U.S. become unemployed in a very, very short period of time. And so, Keith, help us understand how that plays through to your business, you know, by the numbers. I mean, how many people have you have been affected within your company uh, by this, either temporarily or, or, God forbid, permanently? Yeah, so, I mean, we have an, a model where we are basically a franchisor for most of our business. Right. So most of the hotels that we have around the world, nearly 6,000, are really small businesses, are an individually owned hotel who may employ 15, 20, 50 people. Uh, but we have about 400,000 people who work in our hotels around the world. And many of those people today have been furloughed or been, been made unemployed. And so, um, thankfully, the U.S. did pass the CARES Act and had the Paycheck Protection Program, which enabled these small businesses to hopefully retain a lot of their staff. Um, and at the corporate level, we've been cutting people's salaries, we've been cutting capital expenditures, really focusing on liquidity to make sure that we can get through this very, very challenging time in the industry. Well, having said that, you know, Keith, and having kind of an asset light business, how has that protected you as a company overall from, from falling into a deeper crisis? Yeah, it really. I mean, we were some of the less leveraged companies out there in this industry. And since we don't own a lot of assets, we have less exposure. Um, so our, our focus really has been on customers, and on colleagues and on our owners. And how can we help all those different individuals and stakeholders get through this? So customers, it's been about giving them flexibility on bookings and so forth. With our colleagues, it's been helping them access the the, the programs that are around the world, whether it's um, there's a program here in the U.K., where the government is um, basically funding up to 80% of someone's pay up to 2,500 pounds, or accessing the federal unemployment and local unemployment in the U.S., with our owners accessing small business loans that turn to grants. So we've been very, very focused on that because those are the people that are being the hardest impacted. And we know by looking after all those stakeholders and helping them get through this, we can come out of this with a stronger business and a healthier business. But it is, again, you know, people talk about challenging. I mean, I know I've been through the financial crisis. I've been through, you know, 9-11, and we've never seen demand drop like this. And I think an industry is going to have to think about how does it come out of this and how do we work with government and how do we work as an industry to help um, businesses stay vibrant right. during this time frame, reopen, uh, and then see what the, what the new norm looks like going forward. 
Well, we want to talk about that new normal for sure. But one thing I want to ask you about, Keith, before we get too far away from it is what the experience of your owners and your colleagues has been in terms of accessing those small business loans, because we're hearing varying reports about availability. We've heard a little bit of controversy of, you know, who's getting it, who's not. What's coming back to you as your colleagues report in? Well, let me start by saying, just just for the record, IHG, we have not received any funds from the Paycheck right. Protection Program, um, full stop. And we've been very focused on getting our owners there. So we've been hosting webinars um, from day one, helping our owners get to these programs, uh, and had really good success with it. A um, number of wonderful stories about hotels, like Holiday Inn Express that was closed, was able to access the program and then reopen and hire the staff back, too. So it hasn't been perfect. Clearly, but you think about the Small Business Association, I think process is normally about $30 billion a year in the U.S. I think they did $300 billion already in a month. Real testament to their, they're trying to help out as many businesses as they can. Um, clearly, the program needs to expand, though. You know, one of the things we've been saying to the government was, great first step, but these programs are going to have to expand and be extended because this is not going to be over in a month. Business right. doesn't go back to normal tomorrow. And so we've got to think about the long-term and the health and stability of an industry. I mean, it's, it's one in 10 jobs globally and in the U.S. is in this sector. And so that's a lot of people who we need to look after and a lot of small businesses who, who buy from local vendors, who hire local construction workers to build these hotels. It's this interconnectedness of our economy. We have to recognize and make sure we can kind of help work through that together. Does the government and, understand that, uh, Keith? Do you think they understand that when you get on the other side, what really needs to be done? I think so. You know, I've actually had a couple of calls with the U.S. Fed. We've been engaging with the White House, with the Senate, Congress. I mean, they really do understand that they had to move quickly. They do seem to understand that they're going to have to do more. So hopefully they'll be able to get the next part of the package out. Um, But I think it's responsibility of business to help continue to educate them on how this is unfolding, the impact it's going to have more broadly, um, and also how we're part of the solution, too, because we're trying to help out as much as we possibly can. You know, we are... We're hosting frontline workers and medical professionals all around the world in our hotels. You know, we're donating hundreds of thousands of dollars to food banks in different markets around the world to help out people who are in need. We're, we're providing through a great initiative called um, first, hashtag first Responders First, giving thousands of room nights to first responders who are close to medical facilities who need accommodation. You know, I think that's, as an industry, how we have to rally around is how can we help get through this, both by supporting owners, supporting colleagues, but also our frontline workers and medical professionals. And Keith, as you look around the world, as you pointed out, and as Carol pointed out in the introduction, truly a global company, you probably have some inputs that other CEOs don't have in terms of how this looks on the ground in different markets around the world. What are we missing? What should we know about maybe some things and the way this virus is manifesting in the economic manifestation at different points of the globe? It's quite interesting. You're seeing the countries who've got out quite quickly on testing, quite quickly on contact tracing, um, and understanding the use of technology to be able to really manage it and manage the economic impact and open up parts of the economy. Also, countries where they've got very closed borders or, you know, New Zealand's being put out there and, and Australia's coming quite well now. Um, so countries that have been able to act quickly, decisively on testing and trying tracing has done a better job in keeping the economies going, and it will be critical for the U.S. to do that and, and Europe as well, too. 
And that's Keith Barr, the CEO of Intercontinental Hotels Group, joining us from London. Obviously, Carol, no business or very yeah. few businesses have been changed like hospitality. Right, and reminding us that tourism is responsible for one in 10 jobs globally. So it has a big impact on the global economy. You can check out more of the interview in the magazine and check out the full interview that's online and also in our podcast feed. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, chef and owner of Crafted Hospitality, Tom Colicchio. Yeah, talk about another industry that's been dramatically and maybe permanently affected by this virus. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. Well, today we're bringing you some of the most important, we hope, informative conversations Carol and I had on our daily radio show, Bloomberg Business Week, all about the virus. It remains top of mind, center stage for everyone, and we're talking about everything from the car industry to the business of food. One of those conversations was Tom Colicchio. He's chef and owner of Crafted Hospitality, a judge on Bravo's Top Chef, an advocate for the restaurant industry. Jason, he shut down all of his restaurants in New York and L.A., temporarily laid off his workers. He said it was one of the hardest decisions he's faced in his 40 years in the industry. We caught up with him about the impact and also the difficult way forward. Yeah, this has been devastating. Um, and, and not only for me, um, I co-founded the Independent Restaurant Coalition. And so I am in constant contact with uh, many hundreds of restaurateurs and chefs uh, across the country pretty much on a daily basis. And you know, we're, we're struggling out there. And, you know, PPP, we thought was really going to help. And uh, it, it doesn't um, because we're not open. Uh, I think PPP is structured for, for businesses that maybe are somewhat depressed and they can hire their staff back, but there's still uh, revenue moving through their, their system. Right now, restaurants are closed. Um, some are starting to open up in some states, but they're, they're opening up into a really, really depressed market. And so PPP... Um, it doesn't really help us. And so we are asking for a, um, a restaurant stabilization package. Um, we're, uh, we, we sent our, our letter to Congress. We're asking for a $120 billion to stabilize our industry. So the 11 million employees that independent restaurants um, employ um, have a job to come back to. And not only have a job to come back to when we can finally get open, but we're going to be depressed for, for mm. until we find the vaccine. So we're talking about another year almost and what we don't want to do is have a situation where people start coming back to work and then we're closing right you know two months down the road and everybody's back on on unemployment again or out of a job help us understand in in the short term what's the response been what's what feedback are you getting in terms of what's feasible in order to help the industry you know i I think they're hearing us i mean i've spoken to many members of congress over the last you know three four weeks and so has so many members of our coalition and um, they, they hear us, um, and they're, they're trying to help us. They're trying to figure out, and, and you know, obviously um, uh, they're hearing from a lot of different sectors, and people sure. are, are looking for, for, uh, uh, for, for help. Um, we just feel that we're uniquely positioned because so many people are employed by independent restaurants. And then if you factor in all the farmers and fishermen and winemakers and cheesemakers and other various services that, that we are purchasing. Keep in mind, 95%, uh, 95 cents on every dollar that we take into a restaurant goes out the door. And so not only are you helping our business stay afloat and, and providing those jobs, the immediate jobs to the workers, but also all the other people that, that we uh, indirectly employ. And these are, these are small farmers. We're not talking about big mega farms. We're talking about small farmers, 
fishermen who are, you know, fishing, you know, day boat fishermen, small cheese makers. And so, um, you know, there's, there's a desperation here. And, and again, it's, it's not just the restaurants that we're concerned that, you know, uh, it, the James Beer Foundation did a, 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 a um, you know, have, has data right now that maybe 20% of the restaurants won't open up. I'm hearing it's going to be bigger than that. You know, we're, we're hearing from, from, from the industry that maybe 50% of the restaurants won't open up. If that happens, think about the supply chain that is going to actually end as well. So it's not just the 11 million jobs. It's, it's probably 20, 20 million jobs and a lot of, of people's livelihoods. I am curious. You do say Washington's listening. So what's the likelihood that they do something in terms of a stimulus? And you're right. It's not just now, but it's what happens on the other side of this, because this is not a quick bounce back in our economic recovery. No. I mean, some, some industries, I think, will bounce back quicker than others. I think the restaurant industry, when we open up, I mean, we're hearing, I mean, you know, that we have to cut half of our tables out. And, you know, then the question really isn't when we're going to open up. I mean, there, there's this, this idea that George is going to open up and Texas is going to open up and people are going to go. No, it's, it's not when we open up. It's when do people feel comfortable congregating in a place that is, is busy. When you walk into your restaurant and the bartender is wearing a face mask and a waiter comes up to you and greets you with a face mask, you are not going to be comfortable eating in that restaurant. God forbid someone coughs when they're, you know, even even with social distancing. I just don't see how that works out. So we're 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 in it for the long haul. Um, and when I say Congress, they're listening. Uh, they're they're listening. I don't I don't know if there's going to be action. That's what we're hoping for. Yeah, they're hearing us. Um, we have you know representatives, you know, who are uh, making sure that that our our needs are, are are being heard. The question is whether or not Congress will act on this. That's Chef Tom Colicchio, an owner of Crafted Hospitality. And Jason, you know, we've had a lot of conversations with well-known chefs, talked with folks in the restaurant industry. I mean, it has been hit so hard, and there's a lot of questions about how it comes back. Absolutely. I mean, and I think we've also learned a lot in talking to these chefs about the entire ecosystem. You know, obviously consumers, diners, folks like us, Mm -hmm. but the folks who work on the front lines, I mean, these are people who are incredibly, in many cases, economically vulnerable. And when you think about the broader economy, you think about getting back to work, restaurants and food service is going to be at the core of that. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, we move to television. We hear from April Taylor. She's the co-executive producer of Showtime's big hit show, Billions, premiering season five this weekend. All right. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. We're bringing you some of the most important and informative conversations we had on our daily radio show, all of it about the virus and really about the impact. What does the future look like? And again, a reminder, they're happening in real time. A lot of news continuing to evolve around us. Well, one of the conversations we were really looking forward to, Carol, was with April Taylor. She's the co-executive producer for Billions. She's worked in the business of television and film in and around New York for a long time. She worked on Sex in the City back in the day. So she understands the business so she really understands not just the excitement around the season premiere, we talked about that, but also the dramatic impact this virus has had on the production of film and television in New York. Check it out. We, as a, a group of New York producers, came together. Um, you know, many of us had navigated the shutdown, um, which was a rather hectic affair and um, a scary time to live in, realizing that... Um, times were going to change and, you know, we're all using terms like the new normal or, you know, whatever, um, whatever your industry is attaching to. But 
we realize that there's going to have to be some substantial changes to how we how we make any TV film product going forward. And we're working really closely with the industry, with um, all of our partners in the industry, and with the Cuomo Task Force to have discussions that are, you know, guiding us into new solutions. Um, those discussions are, you know, obviously coming from a health and safety standpoint, looking at every aspect of our industry and what we do and how we do it. Uh, those things are unique in New York um, as they, you know, are different in L.A. or in Atlanta or any other region. Um, we're focusing our efforts on this area that has had, you know, obviously such an intense outbreak mm -hmm. and has this great density issue. So, um, you know, uh, there's really not going to be any stone unturned. And the kind of conversations we're having are ranging from the basic PPE conversations that every industry is having to, you know, how do we socially distance while filming um, actors and people who are obviously vulnerable to not being able to wear PPE on, on, a, on a set. So um, we're just, you know, going through all the factors right now. Well, and I do wonder, I do wonder too, like, like will, will there be insurance liability questions that come into this? I mean, do the dynamics and the economics of the business also turn a, a change, April, because of things like that? Uh, I think we'd be foolish to think uh, any industry would not be having intense conversations with regard to insurance and risk management and, um, you know, how we all look at our our employees and um, our companies. Um, these things are, you know, the, the insurance, the insurance business um, and their response to a pandemic, I don't think any of us have seen really what that's going to yield yet. But certainly there are a lot of considerations for people's privacy that are now being, you know, discussed with mm -hmm. respect to testing protocols that might be implemented um, and, you know, all of the, resulting, you know, medical disclaimers and, and comfort level that we all have to have with sharing our personal information. Right. Um, and that's, you know, that extends, that is so not a production issue. That is every company's issue. Yeah. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Excited to get back into our conversation with April Taylor, co-executive producer of Billions. That season five debut, it is right ahead of us this coming Sunday, May 3rd. Couldn't be more excited, especially as... Feel like I've been binging all sorts of things, but it's all been leading up uh, to this. April, I gotta ask you. I mean, this is a, a show that obviously we're both fans of, me especially. And I was worried when it first came on that it was going to feel like a little bit of a busman's holiday, given what we do for a living. And and yet, it's a breakaway hit. I love it. So many others do. Why do you think it is? Like, what is the zeitgeist that it's capturing here? Uh, I think. From the business community, you know, there's a lot of um, the writers do a really fabulous job of, you know, har harvesting some real life stories that kind of feed into um, into the storyline. Sometimes in a in a in a real way. Sometimes they're a little bit embellished. Right. Um, and I think that the rabbit tat tat kind of Tommy Gun New York fast talkingness of the nature of most of the characters is a big um, attraction for. For many of us in the New York area in particular, but I think in general, um, you know, that they're, the fact that the characters' minds all work so fast and that they have 
these, you know, Machiavellian brains that kind of, you know, outfox each other uh, at every turn, building to this intricate um, story every season is something that is exciting and, and that is entertaining. Well, and I got to say, what's entertaining for us, April, no doubt about it, is we'll be like, okay, that feels like this corporate raider or this hedge fund individual. And, you know, all of us who've been covering, Jason's been covering it for several decades, me too. And so it's just great to kind of, you know, compare it to, you know, reality. Um, I got a chance to catch up with Brian Koppelman and David Levine. They did a panel here at Bloomberg to talk about the series. And they, they had some great conversations about some of the real life folks that they talked to and anecdotes. How often are you guys, you know, grabbing something from a headline or reaching out to somebody in the financial community to say, okay, how would you guys play this? How would you do it? I think that the writers are doing that on a, on a, on a regular basis, and I think that a lot of the color of the show um, is having that kind of real insight that only people in the industry can grab onto and know is a, is a, is a true, uh, it's a, either a truth or a heavily rumored, um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> truth. Um, so I think that that's something that they're they're constantly doing and and looking for insight you know exciting tidbits to throw in there that they know are a wink, right? Um, or an you know or an Easter egg as we call them. Well, and April, one of the other interesting things, and I think just sort of going back to our broader conversation about New York is, New York is really a character in this show in many ways, and I know that I mean there was I, I believe it was the. Uh, season premiere last season um, where Chuck is sort of going from place to place to place and it was almost this like treasure hunt through New York City and you know this restaurant and this place and this building it feels like you guys invest pretty heavily in this notion of, of making the city and its environment sort of a character fair oh extremely fair and I think that's one of the you know major appeals as a producer on the show, I think it's so appealing that we, you know, get to go to all these great places and that the writers, you know, and the creators of the show, Brian and David, are New Yorkers and that there is a, a real love of the New Yorkness uh, that surrounds all of these people and that helps define them and, and you know, color their, their world. You know, the Upper East Side of, you know, Chuck Sr. and you right. know, the, the, the cool Bobby Axelrod and, you know, the, the different kind of environments they find themselves in and Chuck being part of this sort of, you know, a lot of the old guard and riding the middle to a certain degree um, is just, you know, the, it gives us a lot of opportunity um, to really showcase New York. And that's a lot of the reason why, you know, as, as a passionate producer, you know, I was one of the people that jumped into this, you know, early effort to start make sure that we were going to revitalize New York film production as soon as we can. I have to say, right, as somebody who's, you know, lived, um, worked in New York for such a long time, it is like such a wonderful postcard. Um, and, and it reminds me of Sex in the City a lot in that you just went to the hotspots, the places that everybody was talking right. about or would be talking about as a result of including them in the show. Yeah, I mean, I worked on Sex and the City for a season many years ago, and I, my, my background is actually from location. So mm -hmm. I have a, a particular passion with respect to this subject. Um, but it was the first instance where people would call us and say, please come and film in our brand new, <laughs> very high-end restaurant um, for, you know, little or no money, just because the, the publicity became such a big part of that experience. And um, Billions is, is not far behind that. I mean, we have, 
we really do have a lot of recognition now, and people like what it says when we've come and, and put them on the screen. Well, and I love, I, I will say this is, I don't want to go too, too far down a rabbit hole here, but um, the music also is unbelievable and uh, it features just a lot of great music and not, you know, the, the obvious music, you know, Jason Isbell, Drive-By Truckers, uh, things like that. And I, I think a lot of that comes from, from Koppelman, especially. Um, I do have to ask you, like, give us a preview of this season. What are we going to see? We sort of saw, I believe, the sort of uneasy alliance at the end of last season between Bobby and Chuck. Am I remembering that right? It was, a, a, I think, a very delicate alliance. Yeah. And um, I think we see, we see these two powerhouses with, that are incredibly smart and have slightly different uh, tactics and egos, you know, um, make their way through this complicated maze again. I think everyone is going to find that there's um, a very, very fun and exciting season ahead of them. That's April Taylor, the co-executive producer of Showtime's Billions. And for fans of the show, you know this weekend it's the season premiere, season five of that show, where, as we discussed, New York, it's really a character. Yeah, it's really a character, and it's really front and center for her, really all of New York State, where there's so much production that typically goes on but has been shut down by the virus. And with that, she is a founding member of uh, the recently created New York Producers COVID Response Alliance. Jason, it's all about relaunching productions in New York State post-virus. So she's thinking a lot, and that group is thinking a lot about how do you come back, how do you do it uh, in terms of filming after the virus. And that wraps up the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. Be sure to tune in to Bloomberg Business Week Radio live Monday through Friday, starting at 2 p.m. Wall Street time. And if you can't catch us live, check out our daily podcast wherever you download podcasts. You can also watch the show live on YouTube. Just go there and search for Bloomberg Global News. We'll be back next week at the same time. This is Bloomberg.